0: All right. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the Midtown Scholar Bookstore. My name is David Kern. I am the cafe operations manager here as well as the podcast coordinator. Thank you for joining us in Harrisburg this evening. We are happy to have you here. Some quick announcements. If you have not heard, we have announced the dates and authors for our Harrisburg Book Festival 2019. You can please check that out at our website, hbgbookfest.com. We've confirmed some really exciting authors, including Dr. Ibram Kendi, Amani Perry, and Eric Fauner. And also, we are going to have a large annual tent sale across the street with tens and thousands of books priced in $3 and under. So again, hbgbookfest.com. That will be October 3rd through the 6th, So make sure to mark your calendars. So moving on. I have the pleasure of introducing our speaker here this evening. P.E. Moskowitz is the author of How to Kill a City, Gentrification, Inequality, and the Fight for the Neighborhood. A former staff member of Al Jazeera America, they have written for publications including The Guardian, New York Times, TheNewYorker.com, New Republic, Wired, Slate, BuzzFeed, *The Splinter, and Vice. A graduate of Hampshire College and the CUNY Graduate School of Journalism, they live in New Orleans. We are here tonight to discuss PE's brand new book, The Case Against Free Speech, The First Amendment, Fascism, and the Future of Dissent, where Mossowitz makes the case for speech as a tool for exposing the truth, demanding equality, and fighting for all our civil liberties. The book has uh, received praise and blurbs from many media outlets and authors. Author Natasha Leonard says that the book offers a radical and necessary intervention. And author Laura Weinrib writes that Moskowitz's provocative and deeply insightful exploration of free speech politics exposes the current controversy over free speech as a manufactured crisis that obscures deeper fault lines in our democracy. Despite its title, The Case Against Free Speech, it is less an indi- uh, indictment of, of speech than a call to reimagine freedom. They are the co-founder of Study Hall, a media collaborative with over 1,500 members, as well as have a Twitter page that I thoroughly enjoy following. So I ch- please make sure you check that one out as well. And thank you for taking the time out of your busy schedule uh, to come visit us here in Harrisburg. And without further ado, please join me in welcoming P.E. Moskowitz to the stage.
1: Hi, everyone. Um, Yeah, thanks for coming out. This is my first time in Harrisburg, actually, so I'm excited to be here and in this really awesome bookstore. (laughs) I kind of wish I had like five days to explore it instead of just a few hours. But um, yeah, so uh, this is actually the first talk I've given on this book. I've done a lot of like Q&As at bookstores so far and uh, done a lot of interviews. Um, So we'll see how it goes. I, I usually am more comfortable kind of doing you know, conversations than just talking at people because I feel like people learn better that way when they're like involved in the conversation. So maybe I'll keep the talk a little short and we can keep the Q&A a little long. Um, if you don't know, I uh, am also the author of How to Kill a City which is a book about gentrification. That was my first book before I wrote this. And um, while I was writing this book, uh, even as I was writing it, Um, I had a lot of questions for myself about how the two topics kind of connected to each other. Um, It felt even jarring for me to go from gentrification and urban housing policy to free speech and the First Amendment and Nazis and fascism and all that fun stuff. Um, And I was really trying to figure out why exactly I wanted to write about this. Um, Even though I knew I did, I didn't have a concrete reason in my head for a little bit. Uh, and then I realized that both this book and my first book come out of the same desire, and that's to go deeper than the very superficial discourse, uh, and opinion and news we see on a a daily basis. With gentrification, that was a lot about, you know, mustachioed hipsters moving into neighborhoods and opening craft beer bars and whatever, but you never really got to hear about the displacement, the, uh, the economics, the, uh, the reasons behind gentrification. With free speech, as I'm sure you all know, over the last few years we've seen a supposed crisis of it, right? Uh, cropping up on college campuses. Um, Donald Trump recently threatened to make Antifa a terrorist organization. Uh, people are always talking about uh, free speech being censored on social media, and um, that that desire started cropping up within me to. Um, go beyond what we, were, what we were seeing, what we were being told about free speech, because it all seemed very superficial and um, frankly, wrong, <laughs> a lot of it. Uh, I w- you know, I was seeing so many opinion pieces uh, in, in reputable papers like the New York Times kind of bashing college students for protesting, it's like saying that they were the new fascists, saying that anyone who requested a trigger warning or anything like that uh, was, you know, just too sensitive to deal with the truth. And um, I just thought that there must be something deeper going on. So that's why I wanted to write this book, is to kind of get beyond that discourse. Um, And what I found as I write in the introduction um, is that free speech as we think of it in this country essentially does not exist. This is not a case against your ability to speak or a case against not speaking, I'm not a fascist, I think you should speak whenever you want. It's simply a case against the idea that we have free speech. I believe we have been sold a bill of goods uh, in regards to free speech uh, that makes us think we have more freedom than we do and that erases uh, the usual problems in the United States of inequality, racism, uh, transphobia, sexism, and all the rest. Um, that free speech has worked more as a propaganda tool than it has as a right for us in this country. So I know that's a bold claim and you're free to disagree with me. (laughs) Um, But I wanted to kind of set out to see whether free speech as we think of it really exists and uh, kind of interrogate The reasons we think of free speech in the way we do. Because we think of it as this universal value that, you know, no matter what part of the political spectrum you're on, at least we can all agree on that, right? Well, it turns out that the reality is a lot more complicated and that free speech itself is a much more politically influenced uh, thing than we've been led to believe. You know, we think of the Second Amendment, for example as inherently political, right? If you think of the Second Amendment, whatever your stance on it, you know that the NRA is trying to influence it, you know that anti-gun groups are trying to influence it, you know, politicians' careers are uh, made and broken based on influencing or agreeing with or disagreeing with the Second Amendment. And we know that for about every issue in the United States. Yet when it comes to free speech, uh, we think of it as kind of just neutral, as just a political good, no matter what. And what I wanted to, find out is, is the First Amendment, is the concept of free speech more like the Second Amendment than we think it is? And in my opinion, the answer is yes. (laughs) Um, So the general thesis of the book is that free speech can never really be defined as an absolute. There's always a line between speech and action that we're working out in real time. And wherever we decide that line is, deeply uh, influences our reality, our politics, what is allowed to be done in this country, legally or illegally. Um, and that line, because it's so important, is uh, argued over, fought over, influenced in secret by dark bunny groups, as I'll talk about in a little bit, um, and is essentially a lot like, uh, like the Second Amendment or like many other laws in this country where there are winners and losers to how it gets defined. I think we think we have a universal right to free speech, but let's start with some inborn limitations to the First Amendment. I cannot walk into this bookstore uninvited and yell whatever I want, because this is a private space, right? So we've decided that private entities and private property are already more important than a universal right to free speech. I think that probably makes sense, but right there is a humongous limitation on the First Amendment, right? That you can only speak, you can only have free speech in a public place or on your own private property. Um, We also have many other built-in limitations. You can't threaten someone and say it was just free speech. You can't harm someone in the name of art and say it was just free speech. Um, You can't do, you can't, pretend a Lady Gaga song is your own song that you made up and say it was just free speech if you intend to profit off of it. Um, So we have all of these inborn limitations and yet we come up against more and more controversy when we think of free speech and people insist more and more that it's this supposedly universal value. When I started reporting this book, I quickly realized that it's It's just simply not beyond those limitations that we take for granted, uh, on a daily basis. The line is constantly being pushed by players on all sides of the political spectrum. So I started writing this book before Charlottesville, uh, happened August 12th, uh, 2017. And I was down there reporting, um, when, you know, there during the early parts of the protest and when, uh, James Alex Fields rammed his car into a crowd of people. I was about 10 feet away. Um, got blood all over my, my legs. Uh, saw Heather Hair die. And um, have been dealing with PTSD for the last two years because of it. And it's been really hard. But it's also been, in a way, beneficial for how I think about this, how I thought about this book and writing it because all of a sudden it made crystal clear to me that when we talk about free speech, we're not just talking about abstract politics, we're talking about a life and death reality of about what we allow in the society and what we do not. Everything leading up to what happened in Charlottesville was legal under the, uh, the premise of free speech. James Alex Fields posting memes of cars hitting protesters, uh, and with the text black lives splatter, was legal. Nazis organizing on forums in the names of free speech was legal. Nazis protesting with AK-47s and other semi-automatic weapons in the streets of Charlottesville was not only legal, but given vast amounts of police protection. And let me remind you that nowhere in the First Amendment does it say the police must protect your free speech, only that you have free speech, right? So that was a purposeful choice by the city of Charlottesville, by the state of Virginia, and by many other people to allow a certain kind of free speech that led to violence. And it, as I said, it really made crystal clear for me that this is always a line, it's always moving, and it always needs to be challenged. Um, after Charlottesville, for the last two years, as I said, I've been struggling with PTSD, I'm in therapy, don't worry too much about me, uh, in case you are. Um, but uh, I, I really wanted to see all these, these kind of ground zeros of free speech where we, where we kind of take, we think there's a, a solid definition of free speech and I wanted to push the limits and show that there was no solid definition and that there's actually just a bunch of political influence going on here. So um, why don't we just start with saying that the United States uh, never really had as much free speech as we think. When the First Amendment was passed, within the first few years, uh, some of the same people who were drafting the Constitution and the amendments were prosecuting uh, journalists and newspapers for printing things they didn't like. They were shutting down political dissent uh, and jailing people who were agitating for leftist revolution um, and uh, you know, using uh, laws like the Alien and Sedition Act to essentially criminalize speech that they did not like, right? So right from the start, there was uh, less free speech than we like to think there was. Let's also not forget that uh, the Constitution legalized slavery, or put into, codified into law that slavery existed, that uh, you, in order to vote, you had to be a white man who owned land, couldn't be a Native American, a woman, or an uh, African American slave. Uh, so that equaled about 6% of the population right there. So if you think free speech, uh, or if you think voting is a cornerstone of free speech, which I I do, it's a bedrock of free expression, right, then the people who crafted the First Amendment thought that it should be a bedrock of the First Amendment for 6% of the U.S. population. So right there, we have a huge limit on free speech that is almost never discussed. Throughout history, we can see the same thing. Does, I can bet when I ask about uh, the most famous line in regards to free speech and the limitations on it, most of you will think of shouting fire in a crowded theater, right? Does anyone know what that line is actually from? It's not about theaters and it's not about fire. It's about a Supreme Court decision that ruled that during World War I, you could jail leftist protesters for agitating against US intervention and imperialism because they were essentially doing the equivalent of shouting fire in a crowded theater. That by dissenting against war, they were causing too much uh, of a ruckus and should be imprisoned. That law was eventually overturned about 50 years later. But it goes to show you that even our most famous quote about the First Amendment, and it's kind of logical, uh, the logic behind it and its logical limitations, you know, you can say whatever you want as long as you don't, cause direct harm through uh, causing hysteria is actually not true. It's based instead on the United States prosecuting people. Um, So with that in mind, it was really interesting to look at the current discourse we have about free speech. I'm sure all of you have seen these op-eds over the last few years about college campuses, about people being "quote-unquote" deplatformed, uh, speakers being disinvited, um, college students protesting against uh, alt-right speakers or co- controversial speakers, and in a lot of this discourse, I saw the First Amendment brought up. Well, that was that was curious to me for a few reasons. One. Private institutions can do whatever they want, as we said, right? Uh, There's no law that says a private institution has to host a speaker or present opposing points of view. Two, it seemed to really elide the real things that were happening on on campus. And all the op-eds, all the newspaper articles, all the discourse I saw on social media about these dangerous college students, I never really saw what they were thinking or what they were fighting for, right? So I actually went back to all these uh, kinds of sites of controversy and interviewed all the people involved with them. Um, I went to Middlebury College in Vermont where uh, students protested against Charles Murray speaking, the uh, famous conservative author who, uh, who theorized that uh, intelligence could be kind of predicted based on race and poverty. I went to Evergreen College in uh, Washington where students, well, students didn't really start anything. There was a a 40 year old uh, event called the Day of Absence, Day of Presence where white students and students of color would kind of split up and talk about racial issues uh, on campus. And it used to be that students of color, would go off campus and white students would stay on campus. And obviously, all of it was voluntary. For the first time a few years ago, they asked to reverse that situation where uh, black students would stay on campus and other students of color would stay on campus and white students would leave. Once again, completely voluntary. Uh, Fox News caught wind of the story and turned it into one of the biggest political controversies of, I believe it was 2016, Um, and essentially said that these students were creating, you know, fascistic campuses where if you don't agree with them, uh, you know, you have to get off campus. It was a complete and uh, utter fabrication. But what was happening on campus was actually a lot more interesting. And this is true at Evergreen. It was true at Middlebury. It was true at Reed. It was true at UC Berkeley. Uh, at all these campuses, students were not just saying, we don't want to hear ideas we disagree with. They were demanding to have uh, They were demanding, essentially, to be good students, to take uh, what they learn more seriously. At Reed College, for example, where there was a controversy over uh, uh, a course that every single Reed student is um, required to take, the purpose of students' protest was not to not learn, but to add more diverse voices to the curriculum in addition to the ones that they were already learning, so that it wasn't just... Uh, old texts from Europe, essentially. They wanted a more diverse literature and it took them years and years of fighting to get that. If that's anti-free speech adding things to a curriculum, uh, I don't really see how that works. Um, at Evergreen, students were protesting actual racial violence on the campus. There were members of the alt-right and neo-Nazi groups that came to their campus with guns preceding these events. Um, there were uh, black men shot right off campus uh, near Evergreen that uh, made students want to have conversations about diversity that the school did not want to have. And so they felt their only, uh, their only way forward was to try to get people's attention and protest. Whether you agree with that or not, I think it's important to know that it was not just simply about students complaining or being politically correct. At Middlebury, Students simply didn't wanna hear someone who had been academically disproven by many legitimate scientists. They pointed out that Middlebury would not bring in someone who argued against global warming or the theory of evolution because as an institution of higher learning dedicated to truth, they would not bring in someone who contradicted all of that, right? So to bring in someone who believes in race science, to them, did not show that they cared about free speech that the administration cared about free speech, but that they felt that the science was unsettled when it, in, in terms of race, that it might be good to hear from someone who believes that certain races are inherently less intelligent than others. So again, this seemed like a matter of academic integrity to me more than free speech. But by framing this all in, in terms of free speech, I think people who were against these students and against the actions that took place were able to kind of pull the wool over the country's eyes and make it about something it wasn't and how can you be against free speech right it just doesn't make sense no one is so in doing that they essentially were able to quash all the debate about race quash all debate about what was happening in academia and students wanting to take race, gender, et cetera, more seriously, and instead frame this as about something uh, going against an inherent American value. Um, So if you look at college campuses and this narrative that they're anti-free speech, let's also just quickly debunk something. Do you think that the admissions process is a free speech violation? Do you think that schools choosing who cannot enter and who can enter is a free speech violation? Do you think that uh, the hiring process of deciding which professors can speak is a a free speech violation? Do you think that grading is a free speech violation? Do you think that uh, having campus security so that uh, random people can't walk on campus and use the library without a student ID card is a free speech violation? Either you don't, which I don't think it is, (laughs) and therefore you can't say that a conservative speaker not being allowed on campus is a free speech violation, because if you think about it, colleges are some of the most restrictive speech environments in the entire universe. That's kind of their point. They're extremely curated environments, like an art gallery or a museum, where people in authority are deciding what goes and what doesn't. So to decide that one person not being able to speak there is a violation of free speech, to me, rings hollow. But there's a reason that we started thinking this way about colleges and free speech, and about free speech in general and protecting uh, ultra-conservative and uh, white supremacist right to it. It's not by accident. It's not because we all just happened to start agreeing with them. It's because there's been a 40-year campaign to make us define free speech in this way. Back in the 1970s, and this is another connection between gentrification and free speech, after there was a massive deregulation of industry and massive tax cuts uh, to the wealthiest Americans, um, all of a sudden, rich people in the United States had a lot more money. So how that relates to gentrification is they started buying up a lot more property. How that relates to free speech is that they created entire political movements based uh, on Uh, or run on their money and with their hand-selected people. So I hate to bring up the Koch brothers because it makes everyone roll their eyes and think I'm a conspiracy theorist who just blames everything on the evil billionaires. But you can read it in my book, you can read it elsewhere. It's, they wrote it down themselves and uh, it's not a conspiracy theory. In the 70s, the Koch brothers, uh, John M. Olin, another billionaire, the family of Betsy DeVos, the current Secretary of Education, and a few others got together, and they started coming up with a philosophy of how to push their ideas into the American public. They knew that uh, you couldn't just say, we want environmental deregulation, we want lower taxes on the rich, we want you to slash labor laws and minimum wages, right? Because no one would go for that. So they had to come up with a way of universalizing their values, the values that benefited them uh, monetarily. And you can read about their their policy advisors, um, this guy Richard Fink, um, and a few others, who wrote down, you know, plain as day, that it's okay to be dishonest when you push for these things because otherwise Americans won't get it. Um, And Richard Fink came up with a a kind of a philosophy of thinking of the intellectual raw materials as the first step to pushing through policy. Uh, He said that you literally have to buy professorships, buy uh, books through grants, buy um, academic thought through studies, um, fund entire schools in universities um, in order to create the raw materials uh, that can then turn into policy. And it's no coincidence that once they started doing this, kind of buying uh, professorships and and giving grants for books and all the rest, um, that we... All of a sudden arrived at our first uh, recent free speech crisis, the PC crisis of the early 1990s and late 1980s. All of a sudden, with literally hundreds of conservative scholars being funded by these organizations, um, and uh, schools being funded by these organizations, and students groups being funded by these organizations, there was all of a sudden a a crisis of conservative thought being silenced on college campuses. Dinesh D'Souza wrote a liberal education which was funded by the same groups uh, I just mentioned. Alan Blom wrote the closing of the American mind that posited that, uh, sorry, I'm distracted by this man's shirt. Um, uh, And uh, uh, (laughs) anyway. Uh, Alan Blom posited that uh, college students were just becoming too sensitive to deal with uh, truth and that they were closing off their minds and that this represented a new fascism in America. The mainstream media glommed onto this idea. Uh, Newsweek ran a cover story calling college students the new fascists in 1991, I believe. Um, new York Magazine, New York Times, all of them kind of really ran with the idea. An idea that was completely funded, again, by these conservative billionaires. And we're still living in the shadow of that funding. The Koch brothers are now responsible for funding 313 uh, centers and schools at universities across the country. Um, The DeVos family was directly responsible for for starting a foundation that laid the groundwork for Citizens United. And Citizens United, if you think about it, is a free speech issue in the sense that it made money the same thing as speech. And that was, so you have to think about this 40-year history that laid the groundwork for where we are today. Um, I think I might be running out of time, right? Yes? Okay. (laughs) Uh, So just really quickly, um, I think we have to think of all those things when we think about these supposed free speech crises we face. Did something really radically change in the United States in the last 10 years on college campuses, uh, in terms of protests with neo-Nazis and those kinds of things? Uh, I don't think anything much has changed in that regard, except that we've been taught to think that this is something new and that we have to defend the Nazis when it happens, or the far right when it happens. And I think that's simply not true. Um, Because I'm running out of time, I'll just really quickly say, You can read in my book about the other hypocrisies in regards to free speech. historically, McCarthyism, Pro, where activist groups were completely broken up uh, and essentially made to be paranoid of each other, imprisoned, killed. Um, you can read about my reporting at the January 20th protests in Washington where uh, hundreds of people were arrested simply for being near broken windows at a protest and had federal charges that would have given them 80 years in prison, hanging over them for two years. You can read about my reporting at Standing Rock where About a dozen people are still in prison actually for protesting against the Keystone XL pipeline. Um, And you can read about uh, many other things that I think are larger free speech violations than protesting a neo-Nazi. I think we have to reframe how we think about free speech. I think we've been taught that it's a very specific thing and that it's only worth defending for very specific people. To me, Milo Yiannopoulos, being booed out of college or not being able to attend a college, even if you think that's a free speech issue, isn't uh, tens of millions of people being imprisoned at any given time not able to speak to the outside world a larger free speech issue? Isn't immigrants being disappeared uh, from their communities and sent back home with no one knowing or just simply put in prison uh, a free speech issue? And more broadly, isn't the fact that The more money you have, essentially the more free speech you can buy. Isn't that a larger free speech issue? I'm an author. I've been blessed by the gatekeepers of free speech like my publisher. And so therefore I have more free speech than the average person. But I can't afford to buy uh, as much advertising as I want. I can't afford to influence schools, entire movements of thought with money, and therefore use my speech in that way. And uh, for other people, they have even less than that. So to me, free speech is not only about free speech, it's about the ability to be heard. And that if we don't connect those two things, that we're really just shouting into a vacuum. What is the point of free speech if it does nothing? What is the point of free speech if it falls on deaf ears? What is the point of free speech if it gets you arrested, killed, silenced in some other way? And what is the point of free speech if it it is reserved only for the few who can afford the most of it? This is not a case against talking, it is not a case against speaking, it is a case against the idea that we have free speech in this country. Because given the inequality we face, given our corrupted democracy, given the, the fact that we live in a society essentially run by billionaires, we do not have free speech. We have free speech for the few and an illusion for the rest of us. And with that, I'll take some questions.
0: Hi everyone. Thank you very much, P.E. So, I'm going to come around with the microphone. Please raise your hand. We'll try and get as many questions as possible. So, questions, questions, raise your hand so I can come to you with the microphone. Oh, we got one up in the balcony. Hold on. I'm going to be going up and downstairs tonight. All
2: right, here we go. Okay. So, um, so I appreciate a lot of what you said. Now, some of the things with regard to colleges are a little more complicated. Some of them are private, Middlebury, some of them are public, Berkeley, or I teach at Chippensburg University not far from here. Um, It's not quite the case that Middlebury invited Charles Murray. A conservative group at Middlebury invited Charles Murray. So does the rest of the campus have the right to say that conservative group doesn't have the right to invite Charles Murray. I don't like Charles Murray either. Why don't we just not go? Why don't we have a picket line outside? Um, Berkeley, um, what is it, 60 years ago, uh, left-wing students at Berkeley protested against the lack of free speech and the free speech movement, and Mm -hmm. basically that Sproul Plaza became An open forum so would we want that not to be an open forum um, on a public campus public university would it be would would the left in the end be paying the price if student groups are not allowed to bring uh, speakers they want to bring to campus
1: Mm -hmm. that's a great question and I don't I don't know if I have an easy answer to all of it um, with regard to public universities, I think there can be an argument made that it's legally trickier to disinvite a speaker or not invite a speaker. Although I also think that's uh, frankly just like shaky legal ground and a bit of BS because as I said, public universities are making decisions of what to have there or not have there all, all the time. There's no law that s- states they must present equally conservative and liberal views. Uh, there are problems there are conservative colleges that don't invite leftist speakers all, all the time. Um, and that that is as much not a free speech violation as uh, a liberal college like UC Berkeley inviting, not inviting or disinviting a conservative to me. Um, with regards to students protesting and uh, kind of shutting down a speaker, obviously that's not a legal free speech issue to me because students are not the government and therefore cannot legally infringe uh, someone's free speech. Um, But I also think that you have to listen to what the students are saying. Um, Milo Yiannopoulos, for example, was known for uh, posting the phone numbers, dorm room numbers of trans students, of uh, undocumented immigrants, uh, inciting actual violence. Several people have been shot outside of Milo Yiannopoulos events, um, or stabbed, I think one of them was. Um, In the case of Charles Murray, this is a very overly white uh, campus, right, Uh, or, or, and very not diverse in many other ways. And students of colors didn't feel safe there when you, when you talked to them. So to them, again, it was not about just hearing dissenting viewpoints or differing viewpoints. It was a matter of material safety, of feeling like the campus, I mean, the, the talk was being presented by the president of, the, of Middlebury, uh, or the president of uh, Allison Stanger, whatever her official title, title was. Um, and they feel they felt like they were essentially sanctioning racism on campus, so whether or not you agree with with the idea of shutting down controversial speakers, I think it's just really important to listen to the actual material realities that went into uh, these decisions that were not made lightly by the students, I should say. I mean, they wrote like a 10,000-word document called Broken Inquiry on Campus, which is still available online, which really wrestles with all these issues. It's not just like, oh, we don't wanna hear them speak. It's like this very philosophical thing, um, which is definitely worth reading if you're interested in it. But yeah, so I don't have an easy answer. I just think it's important to, to reckon with the realities that they were facing.
0: Question: Oh, we got one right here.
3: Hi. Um, this is a completely new topic to me, so I'm just kind of, kind of trying to understand the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Can't people like just say their opinion without being hateful about it?
1: <laughs> I agree. People should do that. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, I think so. I have I have conflicting feelings about like framing things as, like, hate speech, for example. Like, in France, uh, it, it's illegal to say things that are anti-Semitic or um, to, you know, yeah, agitate for anti-Semitic things. Um, but what often happens when these laws are passed is that the government will decide on their own, like, what qualifies as, let's say, anti-Semitic. So right now there are people protesting Israel for the, its treatment of Palestinians, and that that's now qualified as anti-Semitic and can kind of like land you in trouble in France Um, so there's a very fine line between between like wanting to control hate speech and having that kind of backfire that being said I think it's all of our responsibilities to demand that people be respectful of everyone uh, because we again we are not the government we are not Congress so we cannot make no law that impinges on people's free speech, right? That is not our, our duty, our responsibility, or our, in our ability. So again, it is our responsibility to demand that if someone is shouting down uh, people of color or Jews or whatever to make sure that we do live in a respectful society and that is not impinging on their right to free speech, it's being a responsible citizen.
4: Hi, I want to first of all thank you for coming to Harrisburg to speak to us. Um, having trouble thinking of how to frame this as a question, but I'll just give you my experience, and then maybe you can comment on it. Um, I graduated from in 1985 from Oberlin College, which is probably one of the most far-left campuses in the United States, and it was—I mean, that's true today, and it was certainly true while I was there. Um, you know, I'm—I'm I'm definitely left of center right. in my politics. But I did feel the the environment there was very stifling uh, toward con, you know toward conservative points of view. Uh, we did have a young Republicans club. Uh, the event I I really remember this was my senior senior year, so this would have bring, been the spring of 1985. Uh, there was a, you know this is when there was still apartheid going on in South Africa. So uh, several student groups on uh, our main campus square put up a mock shanty town to protest apartheid and you know American and Reagan support for the South African government. Well a few days later the young Republicans put up a mock Berlin wall and overnight, like the night that it got put up, it, you know, students came and tore it down. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, to me apartheid was, you know, a you know a, abomination and had to had to be destroyed but I felt, you know, the Republicans didn't destroy the mock shantytown. town. Right. They just had a legitimate reason to protest the Berlin Wall. You know, there was hundreds of millions of people being oppressed. That was also a reasonable protest and, you know, the left-oriented students didn't even let it up, let it stand for 24 hours. Yeah. So I kind of felt there was, you know, you, it's fine to protest apartheid, but let the Republicans also protest. Uh, The Berlin Wall and you know communism. So I just felt at the time and I guess I still do today that there can be a stifling of you know right opinion, you know right leaning opinions on college campuses at least the far left leaning ones I just wanted to hear your comment on that. Thank you
1: Yeah, I mean I think you know as young people work out their politics things can definitely go too far again I don't think it's necessarily a free speech issue. It's definitely not one from a legal perspective. I also went to one of the most leftist schools in the country, Hampshire College, uh, which might even be more to the left than Overland. <laughs> uh, you know, and I, I had my qualms with the leftist and uh, social justice activism, therefore being kind of conformist and stifling in all those ways. So um, I think i think that exists across the spectrum. You know, I do not expect to be received well at a conservative Christian university. Um so, and I I don't think I would demand to either because that is the, their safe space for them to discuss what they want to discuss. Um, so I do think it's a little strange for, for conservatives to insist on being safe to express their opinions anywhere and everywhere. I think it's maybe that they're used to being able to express their opinions anywhere and everywhere without any backlash. Um, and that in these very small spaces where they're not, uh, it's all of a sudden confusing to them that uh sorry, I want to get more questions in but uh, but yeah I would also say like this goes back to the the line between speech and action is putting up a Berlin Wall speech or action is taking down the Berlin Wall speech or action right so if one is speech but the other's action, then you're kind of taking a side there right so you could view either as a legitimate form of speech or both as legitimate forms of action, but they're one in the, like, whose speech is more important there, the conservatives or the people who feel like it's their free speech to take that wall down. So, yeah, it's complicated. I don't have an easy answer. Yeah. One right here in the front.
0: Hey. Um. So, when you are uh, talking to, like, a conservative, Mm -hmm. particularly online and particularly, like, the intellectual dark web type Mm -hmm. uh, I often find rhetorically they use free speech as a, a barrier, as a shield to avoid discussing the thing that you're talking about trans right. rights, you know, whatever. I have yet to really find a rhetorical device to get around that because they frame their Uh, arguments in the way that's so appealing to liberals. So have you found any, you know, in research and thinking about this, any way to sort of talk to someone who is using free speech as a weapon and getting around that to talk about the thing that really matters?
1: No. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, (laughs) uh, No, I I, I mean, I think, one, I think there are things that like leftists and conservatives can agree on when it comes to free speech. Like Facebook and Twitter and you know these large tech companies uh, that basically control what everyone is allowed to say. Eighty percent of of internet traffic now goes through Google and Facebook. Um, so you basically have these monopolies that get to say what is appropriate, what is not. Um, that I would gladly you know reach across the aisle to discuss. Um, but I do think that you know it's hard. It's really hard when someone is be- when someone is being evasive to. Um, whatever they're being evasive about, I mean, it might be free speech, but what they really don't want to do is talk about the real issues of that are really uncomfortable to talk about. Um, so I, I don't have a solution to that. Uh, one thing I will say, which you can read more about in the book, is that the ACLU used to be like an uh, an explicitly leftist, nearly communist organization in the early 1900s that defended uh, unions uh, bombing uh, buildings of, uh, you know of bosses that were suppressing them, um, and uh, did not ever defend right-wing causes, and also had a definition of free speech, which was very different than it is today. It involved the idea that more of what I was talking about, about if you can't be heard, what is the point of your free speech? So their definition of free speech, and I think a good leftist definition of free speech is it's not just about being able to say any, something, it's about being able to realize that action, without, or what you want without uh, repression or imprisonment. So for unions and leftists back in the 20s that meant that free speech and free expression was not just the ability to a shout and to avoid, but the ability to realize what they were all shouting about through in their case a worker-controlled society. That doesn't really answer your question, but I think that it's helpful to realize that free speech didn't always mean what it used to now, and that it that when people shout about it, they might not know what they're talking about.
0: (laughs) P.E., we have one over here. Over here.
1: Thank you.
5: I'd like to go back to Oberlin and the Berlin Wall. Uh, Do you know, sir, who asked the question, were both those displays put up in an area that the college approved of being used for that purpose? Okay, I won't hold you to it, Mike. That, that's okay. Okay, but it was where people it was where people put things. Okay, now my question is this. Are there property rights involved? What if the conservative students had spent three hundred dollars buying materials to build that wall and hope to use it in some future time? What if they didn't want to do anything with it? Was it still their property?
1: Yeah, I mean, I th- I'm, you know, I'm not a property law expert, but um, I, yeah, I think that's a legitimate issue. And again, it goes back to the idea that there are certain things that supersede free speech um, that we've agreed on, apparently, like private property. Um, and in general, I mean, the entire college is private property. The, the college could decide to expel any of those students that they wanted to because they're there at the college's will. So. Um, I think the idea that we have like universal free speech in the case of this Oberlin campus is just, it's not, you know, the college is allowing it to happen but it's not up to the students what gets to be expressed, it's up to the college ultimately.
0: We have time for like three more questions. I have one here and then
6: there. Hi, uh, since the summer started, uh, Milo Yiannopoulos and uh, his friend Vox Day have tried to reframe the free speech narrative by, by saying that the left never actually wanted free speech they just wanted pornography and to talk dirty to kids, and that the and that what they've been doing is trying to replace Christian blasphemy laws with hate law with hate speech laws. Uh, how how would you counter that?
1: How would I counter that the left?
6: Well, uh, right now the message that they're putting out, like Milo Yiannopoulos and Vox Day, they're you know pretty much the as far right as you can go, and they're and they're making arguments that uh, the left never actually wanted free speech; they just wanted uh, pornography and. Uh, talking directly to kids, and uh, actually you can you can look at Milo uh website and Vox Day's website to, you know, to to see this if you just type in free speech blasphemy, right? Um, to see their arguments, uh, but they but they're but they're trying to they make they make the case they're trying to make the case that uh, you know, the left never actually wanted free speech in, in the first place.
1: Uh, I mean, two things to that. One, the, a lot of the reason Milo Yiannopoulos fell off the map is because he was found to be defending pedophilia. So uh, that seems to kind of be counter to his stance that the left wants to just influence kids with sex or something. Uh, maybe it's a deflection so no one realizes that's what he was doing. Um, two, again, this goes back to whose free speech matters. Does it matter that Milo Yiannopoulos gets to speak more than the kids protesting him get to speak? To me, they're equally legitimate forms of speech and there's no, uh, there's no answer to who gets to speak and the other one doesn't. Um, Hundreds of people protesting in the streets of Berkeley over a Milo Yiannopoulos uh, event—that is a perfect example of free speech, free expression, and protected protest. So the framing of of Yiannopoulos and all those far-right uh, provocateurs as victims, um, to me, is is an, essentially just a lie uh, to sell books and to to increase their uh, speaking fees. I'll also just point out that they, the same kind of foundations that I was talking about pay for Milo Yiannopoulos' chores, pay for the student groups like the American Enterprise Institute that invited Charles Murray uh, and other conservative groups. They pay for the publishing of these books. They pay for the media appearances and the networks that uh, they run on. And it's a kind of self-feeding system where they say something extremely controversial and stupid. They get invited by the same uh, funded groups to talk it up, they get protested, they sell more books, they go on Fox News to talk about it, and it just repeats itself in this endless uh, manufactured cycle. So I have no sympathy for him at all, (laughs) is my answer.
0: We have one right
6: here.
3: So um, kind of using your idea of whose free speech matters, I was wondering, you know, a lot of times when we have these kind of discussions, we come to this point of talking about bipartisanism or nonpartisanism, and do you find that trying to create a space, whether that's online, on college campuses, in writing, whatever have you, of trying to bring a neutral, quote unquote, as neutral as you can possibly be, space is valuable to getting at a universal truth, or is it equating to things that maybe are inherently truth and not truth, or is that just a really complicated issue? and like? <laughs> is there value to trying to create nonpartisan spaces when
1: we talk about free speech? Um, I mean, I, I guess I think that there's no such thing as a nonpartisan space because, like, you're always... There's this... Uh, I forget what the name of the book is. Um, I think it's There's No Such Thing as Free Speech. It's, like, this philosophical book by Stanley Fish where he basically, like, lays out how even if you're creating a space... Oh, my God, the microphone is shrinking on me. Um, LAUGHTER I don't know what's happening the microphone has had enough of me talking (laughs) Um, even the space you create and you know that's in and of itself a political act the other but the one other thing I would say to that is that I think the internet has made us believe that we always have to be like fighting each other and at heads with each other and like all the same issues were happening before the internet, but people would discuss them in their little book clubs or in their political groups where you were not saying, hey, let's talk about the minimum wage, but we have to do it in a space where also neo-Nazis are talking about something else, right? <laughs> so um, I think, you know, obviously coming together, sharing dialogue and all that is good, but I think, it ha- I think there is also value to private spaces of curated thought and experience um, that can allow people to, in a way, speak freer than they would in this kind of, mess of everyone talking at the same time.
0: All right, we have one last question right here in the
1: front row again.
3: Hi, thank you for uh, speaking with us. Um, I tend to be more right of center, Mm -hmm. I'm more of a libertarian um, than a conservative. Mm -hmm. And uh, someone who feels very politically homeless in the past four to five years, Mm -hmm. maybe even longer than that, I see, I see the cycle that you're talking about where the money funds think tanks and, um, on both sides. And they have their own media that you know funnels it through. And um, it feels like with the internet and social media where you have access to everything, we've gotten more closed off. Yeah. Um, and we only read the stuff that we we tend to agree with. And that's, you know, you can go into Facebook algorithms and all that. You like one story, you're going to get 10 stories that speak similar truths. Um, and I don't I don't know what the answer is. What are your, I mean, I'm very against regulation, government regulations. Um, but what, outside of that, what do you see, like, with the social media companies? Right. And um, that problem of you kind of get stuck in a tunnel and have tunnel vision. You only see one thing.
1: Yeah, I think that's a great question. Um, I actually just wrote a a long article about something very similar. I personally think that not necessarily regulation, but laws to prevent uh, monopoly are are necessary and have been beneficial. I mean, imagine if there was only one airline in this country or one phone company. You know, I mean, Internet is essentially a monopoly, and so is your... Uh, you know your utilities, and that's why it can be so poorly run <laughs> and so expensive at the same time. Um, so I I do think that um, breaking up large tech companies would do a lot to provide alternatives so that we weren't stuck in that cycle. Um, but even if you don't agree with regulation, I think there are things you can do to kind of get out of that cycle. I think Facebook and Google, I mean, they literally hire psychologists to make Facebook more addictive and to make you more feel like it's more necessary in your life. Um, and so one of the things to do that is to make you always be viewing and clicking on things that you agree with and that give you that little dopamine hit because you're, or make you angry because those are the two most extreme emo, uh, emotional reactions. There's no space for nuance there, essentially. So there are a lot of alternative uh, social media platforms um, that I can't really, name right now, probably all of them. But uh but yeah, I mean I would just uh suggest um looking for alternatives and kind of trying to I mean I th I don't know, like there are all these like little blogs that I've started following as I you know get into like style and fashion and things like that, just like random interests I have. And they'll have their own little communities, and I found myself spending way more time on those than on Facebook now because there's actual conversation going on. It feels more like a community. So yeah, I mean, if you can, ditch Facebook and try something else.
0: (laughs) All right. Can we please give a round of applause for P.E. Mousebooks? Thank you. you have been listening to the Midtown Scholar Bookstore author reading podcast. Please make sure to hit the subscribe button to keep up to date on all our newest author talks. After every event, there are limited quantities of signed copies of the featured books. Don't forget to grab your copy today. If you would like more information on Midtown Scholar Bookstore, please visit MidtownScholar.com. The Midtown Scholar Bookstore author reading podcast is a free podcast and does not own the rights to any of the readings.